the warm welcome we've received already. We very much appreciate uh, LeGrand and Charity's friendship and getting to spend time with them and, and the children uh, as well. Uh, but we very much appreciate your partnership uh, in the gospel uh, too. It was, it was a joy to be here with you previously and uh, yeah, I look forward to, to, to sharing a bit more with you today. Um, as LeGrand mentioned, I, I do work with this missions organization, uh, UFM Worldwide, and uh, it's been great to, to partner with uh, you in supporting a global mission through uh, UFM Worldwide. Uh, so UFM, basically we say we exist to support churches uh, in making disciples of all nations. So the Lord has called us as his people to make disciples of all nations. And it's in the context of local churches just like this one where the Lord raises up people to go to other parts of the world to make Christ known, to, to help to strengthen churches uh, in places where there are churches that need help, people to come alongside and strengthen them but also to go to those places where there are no local churches. There's over three billion people in the world today who are living in places where there's little to no access to the gospel at all. And unless somebody crosses a culture, takes the gospel to them, uh, they won't hear. But we know it's the Lord's plan for, uh, to gather to himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's raising up people who are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And, uh, but it's the, it's the privilege and responsibility of the church uh, to be involved in that, to send and support these workers. And uh, so uh, the role of a, an organization like a UFM is to come alongside churches, to, to serve churches, to help to support them, and to come alongside their mission partners and do what we can to partner together for the sake of Christ among uh, the nations. And uh, like Legrand mentioned, uh, so UFM has been based in the UK a long time, since 1931. We've been working with churches there as they've sent out and supported missionaries. I've not been working with them since 1931. Um, <laughs> But, but, but they've been around for, for, for that amount of time, and uh, we, uh, we, I was based in the UK for 14 years. My wife, Julia, is, is from there, and we were able to serve local churches there, partner with them on mission, and the Lord opened up the door for us to work with UFM to help churches in, in sending. And, uh, but through that whole uh, process, we also uh, were invited then to move back to my hometown to help UFM in the U.S. So there's a, a growing number of partnerships in the U.S. where we're helping churches to send and support missionaries in different parts of the world. World here. So I'd appreciate your prayer uh, for me as I, as I seek to, to do that here. So there's the, my, my kind of role within the organizations sort of threefold. Uh, there's a preaching and teaching element, raising the profile of global mission uh, in, in the church. Uh, but then there's also like a pastoral care element coming alongside missionaries in different parts of the world. So every week I'm on, I'm on the phone, I'm on Zoom calls with missionaries in different places, seeking to encourage them and help to equip them and visiting them in the parts of the world where they work. And then there's uh, helping to establish the U.S. office as well, just seeking to uh, help to support them administratively and have things uh, set up well to, to assist them in what they are doing. But I'm so encouraged. I mean, I was, I was trying to think just this morning of different, different stories from the past year or so that have been a real uh, encouragement to me as I've looked out across the world. Uh, we've got this sort of front row seat to seeing what God's doing in different places. And I thought I'd just share one story. There's a, a family, we'll, we'll just call them the Smith family. Um, they, were, they were in a church in England. They, they felt uh, the Lord really tugging them towards being involved in mission in a Muslim-majority country in Central Asia. And so they went there. They, they worked hard to learn the language, to work alongside uh, local people. There was, they're, they're in a people group that's 0.07% Christian. And so there are some believers there, but they're few and far between. In most of the towns and villages you go to, there are not churches but everything that they're doing, they want to, yes, reach the unreached, but to do so in a, in a way that's encouraging local believers to go and to, and, to, and to take the gospel to other places too. And they've been doing that for years. I think they've been in place for nine years now. 
But over the past year or two, there's been some really encouraging things that have been happening. They've been faithfully sharing the gospel, faithfully teaching, not seeing much fruit until recent days. So keep that in mind on one side of, uh, of things here. On the other side, do you remember when there was the kind of fall of the, the government in Afghanistan? The Taliban came back in and took over things, and there was just this massive exodus of refugees to all sorts of neighboring countries. There was massive need that, that was there. Uh, churches were getting in contact with us saying, what can we do to help to support refugee work amongst Afghan refugees? Uh, and so we immediately knew, well, we have a partner in one of the neighboring stand countries in Central Asia uh, who's there, and he will know, or he, he and his wife will know, um, how, how this church could help to support Afghan refugees. And as it turns out, um, some of those local believers he'd been working with, they wanted to help Afghan refugees as well and to bring the gospel to them. And so they were talking with local churches like, how can we partner together to go and to serve these refugees and make Christ known to them? And then we had folks getting in touch with us saying, how can we do that even though we're not there? And so we were able to kind of bridge the gap between local churches and them and the, the par partners they're serving with there to go alongside Afghan refugees to make Christ known amongst them. Well, when they got there and they started working with these different refugees, they found that there were a handful of believers there amongst them. And, uh, and just like in Acts chapter 8, uh, they were fleeing their country, but at the same time, they were sharing the gospel with those they were fleeing alongside. They were going through this awful tragedy, but making Christ known in the midst of that tragedy. And the Lord was using them to be a witness to those around them. And so as they went to serve these refugees and found these local believers there, they started gathering with them to, to open up God's word and teach the gospel to them. And, uh, and I got such an encouraging and surprising, wonderful text message from our partners uh, there saying that they had this wonderful pri privilege of gathering together with believers from one country, seeking to reach Afghan refugees, sharing the gospel with them. And then they saw about 20 of them come to faith in Christ and want to be baptized and follow the Lord. And it was just so thrilling to see that happen. And there was so much that went into that. There was just God's providence at work, stirring a church in one part of the world and stirring this church in this other part of the world and bringing these Afghan refugees to the place where they would hear the gospel and come to faith in Christ. And so... I'd appreciate prayer for me as, as I come alongside folks like this, the Smith family who are uh, in situations like that, sharing, uh, sharing the gospel there. And your partnership with us uh, encourages and enables us to support them well. So thank you so much for that. I want us to spend the rest of our time, though, this morning in 3 John. So if you've got your Bible, please turn with me to the New Testament, uh, to the epistles of John right there towards the back. We're going to be looking at 3 John together. Now, 3 John is the shortest book of the Bible. And it is often overlooked, but the truth that we find revealed here in 3 John is of great importance. It shows us what it means to work together for the truth. So that's, that's going to be our theme for this morning, together for the truth. So I'm going to read the whole of 3 John. It's a short book, so we can read the whole book together. It says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. 
you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, which is living and active. Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to see what you are saying to us in your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to respond as you would have us to respond to your word as well. Lord, we pray that you would be at work in our lives this morning, that you would change us that you would draw us to Christ, and that you would transform us into his image. We pray all this in his name. Amen. A few years ago, I read a fascinating book called um, Tribe by a guy called, I believe it was Sebastian Junger. One of the things that the book focused on was the camaraderie that it, that's experienced by soldiers uh, when they're out on the battlefield in particular. And it's put in contrast to their kind of re-entry, their sense of isolation when they return. This can happen. One of the things that it draws out in the book is is to say that as horrific as it can be to be in that kind of wartime situation, oftentimes there is a depth of community that is experienced as they work together with others for a common purpose. And then after that, returning to an individualistic Western culture can be really, really jarring and isolating and lonely. And then mental health issues can be a major problem. So in this book, he he tries to make the case that we function best in community rather than in isolation. He presents all kinds of research to show that we really need, we share this need to be part of a mutually supportive community that's joined together for a common uh, purpose, a common goal. But then there's a big question raised by this book, and it's where can that kind of community be found in everyday life? Where can we find a mutually supportive, loving community that's joined together in a common purpose? This book is not written by a believer, so it's, it's a bit thin when it comes to the actual answer to the problem. But of all people, Christians should be able to answer the question of where a community like that can be found. You see, the depth of community that we long for isn't mere tribalism. It's not a mere like survival instinct that's developed over time. No, it is by design. We were made for community. First of all, we were made to know God. 
God exists eternally in this perfect, loving community called the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We were made to know this God and to live for His glory. Of course, sin broke this relationship between us and God, but praise God, Christ came into this world to reconcile us to God. But also in reconciling us to God, He didn't just do that for us as mere individuals, though that's true as well. He also reconciles us and makes us part of the people of God. In Christ, we are reconciled to one another as well. We're brought into this people called the church. You see, we were made to be part of His community, His people in this world. The church is a community that has been joined together in love for the sake of the truth. We lovingly support one another while on this common mission together to make Christ known to the ends of the earth. We're to be a loving community that's joined together in this common purpose to make Christ known. You know, people long for this kind of community. And God has designed His church to be that kind of community. So in 3 John, at the end of verse 8, it says, we ought to support people like these that we may be, just mark the words, fellow workers for the truth. We're called to be fellow workers, working together in community for the truth. So we know that that's true. But the question I want to pose to you this morning is, can that kind of loving community, joined together for the sake of the truth, can that kind of community be found at Grace Community Church? Are we actively supporting one another in love as we work together for the sake of the truth? And perhaps individually we can ask ourselves this question, am I participating in that community? It's not for me to look around and say, oh no, they're, they're not doing that, that. Am I loving others for the sake of the truth? Or am I holding it back? Well, this morning I want us to see how this plays out in the lives of, of two, two men who are mentioned here in 3 John. Uh, their names are Gaius and Diotrephes. And in these two men's lives, we see a great contrast in this regards to being a community of love for the truth. And we're going to look at them one, of the, one at a time and see the contrast between the two and see which one reflects um, our own participation in the life of the church. So first of all, here's, here's my clever outline. Number one, Gaius. Number two, Diotrephes. Okay, you got it in front of you. Gaius, Diotrephes. Number one, Gaius. So 3 John is, is a letter written by the Apostle John to a dear brother in Christ called Gaius. And John makes it clear he loves Gaius. He says, you're a brother that I love. Four times in the book, he calls him beloved in verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, verse 11. There's other places in Scripture we see this word beloved uh, spoken to a, a body of believers, like calling the church as a whole beloved. But he's not afraid to look, you know, look this brother in the eye or at least write a letter to him and say, brother, I love you. Right? He expresses this love to this brother in Christ. But he also, John not only loves him, he also is encouraged to see the truth at work in this brother's life as well. So John mentions over and over, and you see this particularly in verses 3 and 4, that he is, he's commending Gaius for walking in the truth, and he's spurring him on in the truth here. 
I was, in a, I was in a coffee shop not too long ago. I spend a lot of time in coffee shops, but uh, it, was, it was around December, and I was really struck by three kind of burly guys who kind of walked in, and they were obviously all there meeting each other, and they all came with their Christmas presents in hand, ready to give to, to one another, and, uh, and I kind of slightly overheard their conversation, and it turns out there were three men in ministry from different denominations locally, and, but they were there to encourage one another in the Lord. And uh, so they all handed each other their presents. They all opened them up. And of course, they were all theology books, uh, Puritan works and that, that kind of thing. And so they all opened it up. And I was really struck that before they left, you know, they, they, they hugged one another. They said, brother, I, I love you. And they were encouraging each other in the truth. So love and truth was there in that little community of brothers there. You know, we see that here in 3 John. But, you know, we all need Christian friends who love us and spur us on in the truth. We know people who need us to be that for them as well. John was this for Gaius, but also we see that Gaius was this for others, and this is kind of what I want to draw out in Gaius. John is writing to Gaius about his love for others and his commitment to the truth. So John's modeled it, but he's, he's writing to him about his own love for others and commitment to the truth. So let's take those one at a time. Let's see Gaius' love for others and see how that might challenge us. Notice, first of all, whom he loves. Who, do, who, who does Gaius love? Well, it talks about his love in verse 6, but the people he loves are spoken about in verse 5. Beloved, it's a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. Okay, so they were both strangers and brothers, brethren that he loved. Not that they weren't strange brothers, though I'm sure, that, like every church, there's probably a few strange brothers in here. But they... Um, he loved these brothers who were also strangers. What's that talking about here? You read the context and you see that these are traveling gospel workers that are passing through the area. And when they're passing through the area, he makes a point to look after them. They weren't people that he knew previously, but he cared for them. Why? Because they were brothers and sisters in Christ. He cared for them. Not because they had this long history together. He cared for them because they were part of the family of God. You know, one of the wonderful privileges I have working with an organization like UFM is I get to go to different parts of the world and meet with believers and churches in places I would have never have gone to otherwise. And I'm, I'm, it never ceases to amaze me. I can turn up uh, just off in the middle of uh, West Africa somewhere and, and turn up to a, to, a, to a church and there is an immediate bond between brothers and sisters in Christ, we are from different places, different cultures, different experiences, but we are one in Christ. We are part of the same family. You see, the church isn't designed to be a, a, a social club made up from, uh, of people of the same interests or the same life stage or the same culture. It's a family that unites people from all different backgrounds and life stages and cultures. We are united in Christ. And that's seen in practice when we welcome and interact with and care for one another as family, especially as family with those with whom we wouldn't necessarily interact with in the same way otherwise. You see, when we open up our hearts and open up our homes to a wide array of believers, we bear witness to the gospel by our love for one another. So notice how he loves them. So this is who he loves. He loves all the family of God even the ones that he doesn't necessarily know in a kind of natural way, like, like somebody he's, he's known for a long time. How, how does he love them? 
a few things. If you just take the word love there, we'll then move out from there. He loves them, first of all, with a love that finds its source in God. The love finds its source in God. Later, later in the book, when you come to verse 11, we see that the good that is worth emulating in other believers that we see is a good that comes from God. It, it emanates from people who have seen God. The love that Gaius shows to others is a love that he has first seen himself in Christ. And so we go back to that word love that's used here in verse 6. It's talking about agape love. We don't have to guess as to what John is referring to when he talks about agape. This is the very love of God. You go back to 1 John especially, you see this spelled out very plainly. Here's what John thinks about when he thinks about what love is, what this kind of love is that Gaius is showing. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, for example. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. What's the love of God like? Well, this is the sacrificial love of God that's been shown to us in Christ. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the love of God has been revealed to us in Christ. Isn't it wonderful that our love for others isn't the thing that attracts God's love to us? No, He doesn't love us because He's somehow impressed by how we have been living. He's not impressed by how we've loved Him and loved others with our lives. God decides to set His love on His people. And it was while we were still sinners that He set His love upon us. And it was while we were sinners that Christ died for us. The love that we are called to then show is that abiding love of God in us being expressed to others. 1 John 4.12, Beloved, if God so loved us in that way, the way we see in Christ, we also ought to love one another in that way. And if we love one another, God abides in us and His, per- and his love is perfected in us. So we're called to show that kind of Christ-like love to others. It's not just Christ-like love, it's the very love of Christ abiding in us, coming through when we love one another as family. But isn't it wonderful that it's the love of God? Uh, uh, when we've gone to the, to the beach, not been to the beach in the U.S. yet, but uh, in, in the U.K. certainly we, we, we love to go to the beach as a family. And uh, one of the things that our kids love to do is... Uh, as you know, sandcastles and that kind of thing, but they've, they've built different like trenches or different different things like that. And, uh, and and oftentimes they'll have buckets and they'll go back to the to the sea and they'll fill their buckets up and they'll come and they'll fill the moats up around their castles and that kind of thing. And but you know I, I, they do it back and forth, back and forth. You can do it all day, but there's no point at which I've seen them worry about whether or not they will have enough water to fill their trenches. Like they know with their little buckets that when their bucket runs dry, there's a source behind them that they will not uh, be able to, to get to the bottom of. And so here we're being called to this, this, this love, and I might look at my own capacity for love and think, well, there's, there's not much of it there. I'm not sure I'll be able to love in the way in which I'm called to love here. But we're, 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 we're told, look back to the source. This is a love that comes from God. Swim in His love. You won't get to the bottom of it. And then out of that, then love others. Be a channel for His love. So it's a love that finds its source in God, but it's also, secondly, a love that's seen in action. You see, the love that Gaius showed to them could be seen in his efforts 
for them. You see that in verse 5. He's encouraged in all the efforts that Gaius is involved in. He's taking care of their needs. So these traveling gospel workers, these missionaries, would have needed a place to stay, uh, food to eat, funding for the the next leg of the journey, um, encouragement in the work they were undertaking. And Gaius clearly led the way in providing this kind of generous hospitality to them in various ways. You see, this God-given love doesn't just involve our affections. It also involves our actions. It's not just saying, oh, I really feel a love for my church family. It's, it's can that love be seen in practical ways? Um, you know, that's what we're called to. We, we, we heard it earlier in the Bible reading in, uh, in Romans 12, 13 as well. It says, contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. That's where our love is seen in showing hospitality. Um, so what is hospitality? Well, <clears throat> well, it certainly looks like looking attentively into the eyes of someone who has something to, to share with you and, and not sort of looking like you'd, you'd rather be somewhere else and speaking to anybody else but them. Um, sometimes hospitality smells like a home-cooked meal. And other times it smells like a hot and ready from Little Caesars. Um, so, so hospitality feels like a, the, a pillow to, to rest your head on. It sounds like a word of encouragement. Hospitality comes in many forms, but it's the love of God being expressed in these practical ways for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And and by the way, that's different too. It's not entertaining to try to impress other people with with how how much we've shown there. It's not a kind of reciprocal thing in in that, like, oh, I'm expecting something in return uh, because of what I've done here. No, it's welcoming one another as we have been welcomed by God in Christ. Romans 15, 7 says. So it's a love that finds its source in God, a love that's seen in action, and it's a love that is worthy of God. He says that explicitly at the end of verse 6. Send them on their journey in a manner that is worthy of God. John doesn't tell him to egg it down. He, He encourages him to go even further. Make sure that God is honored in the love that you're expressing to these brothers and sisters in Christ. So we should ask ourselves, am I honoring or am I loving others in a way that is honoring to the Lord? Can Christ-like love be seen in the hospitality I show to others with my time or with my home? We can look at lots of practical examples there. And also, perhaps we can ask this, can it be seen in the range of people I show hospitality to? Not just the people that I would kind of hang out with naturally anyway. But the younger with the older, the married with the single, single with married, just right the way across because we're, we are family. Joined together by the love of God in Christ. So you see this love for others in Gaius, but also you see with that a commitment to the truth. Right? There's the common purpose coming through. Gaius' love is coupled with concern for the truth. You go back to 1 John, you read it, you see the, the gospel spelled out plainly. We see the transforming power of the gospel. You, you go to 2 John, we're warned against welcoming false teachers, those who distort the truth or, or teach lies. We're, we're, we're warned against welcoming them lest we take part in their evil works. But you get to 3 John, and that's kind of spoken of in reverse. When there are people that we share this truth in common with, we share the gospel with, we are to welcome them. Why? Because we are joined together for the sake of the truth. That we might be workers, fellow workers for the truth. Verse 8. 
So what is this truth we are working together for then? Well, the people Gaius was taking care of were people who had gone out, verse 7, for the sake of the name. But simply, these were people who were proclaiming Christ. As it says in Acts 4.12, as it does in many places in Scripture, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Christ. There were people who were devoted to proclaiming Christ and the salvation that's found in Him and Him alone. He says that non-believers aren't going to get behind the work. You see that in verse 7. They're accepting nothing from the Gentiles. When it comes to proclaiming the gospel, uh, non-believers aren't going to say, yeah, that's something I want to get behind. So it's down to, to the believers to get behind that work, to join with them in that. Not only as an expression of Christian love, but also for the sake of the gospel they are proclaiming together. So our lives should be characterized by a commitment, a mutual commitment to the truth. So if we've heard and believed the message of the gospel, then we will know how precious and important it is. And if it's precious to us, we we will want to see it preserved, but we'll also want to see it proclaimed as well. So when we love one another, it isn't just about us being well cared for. That's part of it. But it's not just for our own sakes. It's not just for the sake of care. It's also for the sake of camaraderie. We support one another well so that we might move together well, proclaiming the gospel of Christ to the world around us. We love one another well so that the love of Christ might be seen and known through the church. That's the case as we work together in local mission right here in Kingston, but it's also the case as we join with brothers and sisters around the world too. So by supporting, this is the other thing we see here, our lives here should be characterized by that same commitment, but also by supporting gospel workers, we take part in the gospel work that they are doing. Though we might be in different places, we are part of the same global mission. It's like William Carey, the early pioneer missionary, went to to India. Before he went, he met with a pastor friend of his and uh, looked him in the eye and he said, we will go down into the pit if you will hold the rope. And uh, so the idea was William Carey was going to go down into the pit in this place where Andrew Fuller could not go. But it wasn't just William Carey's work. It was also the work of those who were supporting him in that. They were working together for the sake of the truth. One was on the front line, the other was back home, but they were both called to the same global mission. And I know that you are doing this as a church. And I've, I've received help from this personally, and I'm grateful. And I want to just spur you on in that this morning. Like John to Gaius saying, well done, keep it up. I want to say that to you as well. Look, look, look to grow in this. Look for ways you can partner with one another and with people in other places for the sake of the gospel uh, across the U.S. and around the world too. So may the Lord help us to not let go of the rope, but to lovingly partner together for the sake of his name. Okay, so that's, that's Gaius. We'll spend a, a bit less time on Diotrephes, but we need to see him as well. So number two, Diotrephes. Gaius welcomes others. He loves them. He sees the importance of partnering together for the sake of the truth. Diotrephes does the exact opposite. If Gaius was Santa Claus... Diotrephes would be Krampus. Have you heard of Krampus? Santa Claus is kind of German 
counterpart uh, who instead of you know, giving children good gifts, he, he punishes those who, aren't, you know, who are on the naughty list. So it's, it's a scary thing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that you Google it. Um, but nonetheless, you've got two opposite ends of the spectrum here. You've got the, the, sort of the, the, the good example and the bad example. The traits we see in Diotrephes, if you lay them out side by side, are the mirror opposite parallels to the good that has been commended in Gaius. So who, who, is, who is Diotrephes then? Well, he's a church leader of some sort. doesn't tell us whether he's appointed uh, in, in this position or if he's just somebody of influence who has assumed this position. Uh, we don't know. But either way, there's a problem here. And it's because of what he is like. And that's what we see about him here. In verse 10, what does it tell us about, or sorry, verse 9, what does it say about Gaius? He says, or about, about Diotrephes, rather. He likes to put himself first. This is the root of the issue here. Some translations translate it. He loves to have the preeminence. You know, Colossians 1.18, we read that preeminence is something that belongs to Christ and to Christ alone. But Diotrephes lives and operates as though he is at the center of his own universe. You know, he's the master of his own ship. And when it comes to the people he leads, well, they can either get on board or they can, you know, they can walk the plank. One way or another, he is going to get his way. He, he thinks these things to be, should, done, should be done in a certain way, and that's how it's going to happen. Gaius loved his brothers and sisters in Christ. Diotrephes loved himself. You know, in Greek mythology, there's a, there's a character called Narcissus. You can imagine what word we get from that. You know, he, he, the story is... He, you know, he, he went through his life rejecting other people. He couldn't find somebody that he really loved until one day he was out hunting and he got really tired and he went down to take a drink of water and he looked in the pool of water and there finally he saw the person that he truly loved. And it was, of course, a reflection of himself. And that was his death. This narcissistic preoccupation with Self is the opposite of the sacrificial, others-oriented, Christ-honoring love that we are called to. Sadly, this is seen in Diotrephes' life as well. He puts himself first. What does he do then? Remember, love is seen not only affection, but action. So if Diotrephes loves himself, how does that come through in his actions? Well, we see a few different ways. He resists authority. We see that here. John has written a letter to the church, but he arrogantly rejects it. You know, John is an apostle of Christ, but Diotrephes refuses to acknowledge his authority. He has better ideas and a better way of doing things, and that's how he was going to operate, no matter what John wrote to him. Another way, he, he spoke disparagingly of others. It wasn't enough for him to just disagree with John or reject his authority. He wanted to get others on his side. So he started you know, trash-talking John, uh, gossiping, talking wicked nonsense, it says, trying to get others on his side against John. Another thing, he, he refuses to show hospitality. When these missionaries, these gospel workers came through, he refused to welcome them. Instead of treating them as family, he treated them as strangers, all right. He treated them as a, as a nuisance, people to be viewed with suspicion. And another thing, he goes even further. He's a hindrance to others. 
He not only refuses to welcome them himself, he keeps others from doing that. And if they resisted, did you see what happens to them? He kicks them out of the church. It is literally his way or the highway. If supporting others well works to the furtherance of the gospel, then his actions worked against the furtherance of the gospel, the exact opposite. So how is he going to be dealt with? Well, if John says if he's able to come to the area as he's hoping to soon, he's going to bring this to light and to deal with this in person. Well, what about us? We've got the, the Word of God in front of us today, so perhaps we should bring ourselves before the Word of God under its authority and say, Lord, would you bring to light any selfishness in me? Would you point it out in my life? Or, or perhaps would you bring somebody else along who could, who could help me with this? Because there will be ways that it comes out, and selfishness, by the way, is something that we all struggle with. We're, we're all somewhere in between Gaius and Diotrephes and probably it fluctuate from one day to the next, don't we? we can, there's, there's a selfishness in all of us. Like Diotrephes, we can find ourselves resisting authority, perhaps. We can think too highly of our own ideas, hold too tightly to our own preferences. And w- one way that selfishness comes out is how we respond when we disagree with decisions that have been made. It can happen in a church. Perhaps church leaders make a decision. Or the congregation as a whole makes a decision to go in a certain direction and it's not what we would have voted for. And so that really, that really bothers us in a big way. Does our response then come from a place of humility and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing, wanting to keep the truth of the gospel the main thing? Or does it come from a place of pride and selfishness and distraction from the gospel? The same thing can be true of any circumstances out of our control do we do we really resist it or do we trust in god's providence and care do we speak disparagingly of others perhaps when, we, when i think about my words i have to think do my words reveal love or do they reveal selfishness when there's been a disagreement once again do we kind of roll our eyes and grumble and gossip try to get others on our side or do we respond in in love do we perhaps neglect to show hospitality not welcoming others. It might not be an outright refusal, but we perhaps just keep to ourselves, scrolling through our social media accounts, leaving that, that effort stuff to, to somebody else. Perhaps we, you know, as they say, your, your home can be like your castle. Maybe we treat it like our castle. We, we go over our moat and pull back the drawbridge, and, and that's a, we're off to ourselves there. We don't think of it as something to be used in love for the sake of the gospel. It's, it's, it's mine. I want to put myself first here. Do we hold others back? You know, selfishness never just affects ourselves. We may not kick people to the curb like Diotrephes did, but I know my selfishness can affect the people around me for sure. And it can hinder the church from moving forward in the cause of Christ. You see, focusing on ourselves will divert our time and energy and attention away from loving others and away from the cause of Christ and, and, and doing what we're called to be doing, which is getting out to make him known. So are our lives characterized by selfishness or love? Well, to just draw this back together, truth and love, being together for the truth. We are called to be a loving community that's joined together to proclaim the truth of the gospel for the glory of God. The church is a place where we lay down our selfish ambitions and lock arms with our brothers and sisters for the cause of Christ. We've seen a good example of this and a bad example of this. One to be emulated, another to be rejected. We've also seen where that life comes from. 
It comes from seeing and knowing God. So here's a wonderful thing. You know, if I look at my own love and my own commitment to the truth, I will see lack, I see sinfulness, I see selfishness. So I want us to finish not by looking at ourselves, but by looking to Christ. You see, the more we look to him, the more we see of his love for us in spite of our own selfishness. And the more that we know and experience his love for us, the more we are then compelled to show that love to others around us. So that comes not from just continually looking at ourselves, but continually looking to Christ, experiencing his love. The more we know the one who is true, the more we will devote ourselves to the cause of the truth of the gospel. We will want people to hear about this Christ that we are looking to. So let's pray that we might do that. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, how we want to praise you that when you call us to love and truth, you are calling us to yourself. Lord, we want to thank you that in Christ we are reconciled to you and brought into your family. Lord, help us to be a people who are growing together in our love for one another and for the world around us, that Christ might be known here and to the ends of the earth. We ask all this in his name. Amen.